Now listen closely to this, kids, before you run off on me. If you are a second grader, I'd like you to come sit in the front row over here. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. It's going to be fun. It's going to be worth your time, Ezra. However, if you are a age four to the first grade, that's a change, you're now excused to kids' club. So I should have a group of second graders sitting on my step or my... But you're good. Well, second graders, I want to welcome you to the sanctuary. Maybe you've stayed in here before for this part of the service, and maybe you haven't. Either way, I want to tell you what happens. Normally, after you run off for kids' club, somebody like me gets up and gives a sermon. That just means we open up God's Word and we talk about it. Oh, come on now. Would you believe, Ezra, as much as I try, my goal is not to entertain you. My job is to teach you God's Word, and not only you, but everyone in the room, be them a first grade or second grader all the way up to if you're in your 90s. That's my job. In order to help you, Ezra, so you don't get so bored, i got a couple of tools I want to give you, okay? The first of which is a sermon note sheet. These are actually available at the tables. Anyone is welcome to gather them, but I'm just going to give you guys one for now. You can find them at both of these tables. They're a little bit helpful to help you keep paying, to help you pay attention and to look for some, some specific things. You'll find pens in the pews. Anyone can, is welcome to gather these. They're just helpful to help you listen and they talk about them in trailblazers sometimes. So that will be of a little help to you. Secondly, I'm going to give you a blow pop for two reasons. One, because blow pops are delicious. And secondly, is the apple okay? All right. Secondly, they'll keep you busy. So here's your blow pop and your sermon note sheets. They'll help you this week. Next week, you're responsible for getting your own sermon note sheets and your own blow pop. But know this, we are really, really glad you guys are in here with us. And we're excited to have you. So you can go back to where you came from. And remember, next week, bring your own blow pops. Uh-huh. Yeah, that exact one. No, you eat it. Well, this morning, by the way, the rest of you can bring blow pops. I'm totally fine with it. Just when you chew your gum, like put it away, don't stick it to the pew. That's your point of the week. This morning, we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Matthew. The series is entitled, Follow Me. Dropping that one. The idea behind this series is that we'll be looking at the book of Matthew, but not the entirety of the book of Matthew. No, we're going to hone in on one theme and a theme that streams throughout the entire book. What does it mean when Jesus says, follow me? It's a command that he gives seven times in the book of Matthew. He says it to Peter and Andrew in Matthew 4. He says it to an unnamed disciple in Matthew 8. He gives it to Matthew, the author of this gospel here in Matthew 9. And he uses it as his principal message to crowds of people in Matthews 10, 16, and 19. This is what Jesus says in the gospel of Matthew. He says, follow me. So what do you think he meant by that? How do you want to interpret that? What do you think he intended these guys to do? Do you think that he meant, just come with me now, and then go back when you're bored? Does he mean come back again when it's convenient? 
Is it this come and go mentality? Like, hey, once a week, show up and that's good. Do you think that's what Jesus meant? Or, or do you think maybe he meant claim my name just enough to feel okay, but not enough to actually impact your life? What do you think he meant? Because as we dig into this series, as we dig into the gospel of Matthew, what we're going to find is his disciples actually knew it. They got it. And so we want to lean into this. Is this question of what does it mean to follow me really matters. And it's well worth our consideration as we spend the next 10 weeks in this series, in part... Because we live in a broad churched culture that declares easy believism. This idea that anything goes, that just believe in Jesus and do whatever and you're fine. And in part because we also live in a worldly culture. A culture that denies objective truth and reality. A culture that says whatever you believe is okay. A culture that says whatever you believe about Jesus is okay. And a culture that says whatever it means to believe in Jesus is okay. And yet seemingly, as we look at the life of Jesus and we consider his words and his ministry in the book of Matthew, and to be fair, it'd be true in the other three Gospels, we'll see that Jesus doesn't leave those as options. In fact, he denies every form of easy believism. We press into this text, we'll find Jesus actually pushing away the crowds in order to train and teach his disciples. We'll see Jesus cut out all of the subjective out of it to objectively declare himself the Savior so that there is no room, no understanding of Jesus merely being a good teacher or a good philosopher. You have to see that Jesus claims to be the Savior. And so as we step into this series in the book of Matthew, considering what it means to follow him, it won't come down to what we think. For in this book, in the book of Matthew, in the Bible, through the lives of the disciples, we're going to get a very clear picture of what following Jesus looks like. So this morning, we're starting in the book of Matthew chapter 9. As you start turning there, and by the way, if you're a second grader, let me give you a little hint. I put the page numbers on the slides. So if you pick out a Red Pew Bible, you can flip there faster than your dad. It's cheating, I know, but use it. Although I don't put the pew number of your Bible. What we find in Matthew 9... Well, let me start this way. You might quickly ask, why are we in chapter 9? And here's your answer. Because the book of Matthew is written by the disciple Matthew. And this was part of his calling as a disciple to write this book. And Matthew, one of the disciples, wrote this gospel. He's one of two gospels that's written by a disciple. John was the other one. And in case you're wondering, the book of Mark was written by Mark, who was not a disciple of Jesus, but rather he was a disciple of Peter, and Mark would have garnered all the information he had by being discipled by Peter. That matters. And it matters because you start to see this pattern of discipleship being replicated even in the Gospels 
that Peter doesn't write the book. Peter teaches a guy to write the book. And the Gospel of Luke, written by Luke, who was not a disciple of Jesus. No, he was one of Paul's disciples. And then there's the information he shares, the stories he tells, comes because he was discipled by Paul. And again, you see a picture that God saw fit for two of the four Gospels that we have to be given to us from guys who were discipled by guys who were disciples of Jesus. It's a pattern. But here in the book of Matthew, Matthew, one of the twelve, writes and tells us the story of Jesus and his disciples. And he writes 28 chapters or 18,345 words in the original Greek. Only the Gospel of Luke is longer. And he does so because Jesus told him to follow him. That's a direct implication of the calling he receives on his life. Jesus changed his life and changed him completely, so much so that he desired to disciple you and everyone who would read his book. So turn with me into Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, and let's consider Matthew's story for a moment. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Let's pause for a second. Now, where Jesus comes from matters, and we'll handle that in a couple of moments. But have you ever considered that Matthew was a tax collector? I mean, we love to give Zacchaeus the business for being a tax collector, but we typically leave Matthew alone. And yet, Matthew was not just a tax collector. He was in the upper echelons of tax collectors. We know that because he's not wandering around taking taxes. He's got a booth, which means he's dealing in exports and imports, which means if you're coming through, he can hit you every day if he wants to. He was a tax collector. He took money from Jewish citizens to give to the Roman government. And... As a tax collector over exports and imports, he was allowed to tax you whatever he wanted, and he had an army surrounding him to make sure you paid it. That is to say, if you owed 10% and he wanted more, he could charge you 25% and could totally get away with it. And the money that you would give him would make him wealthy, and you would know it. Because you'd watch his life and you'd see how he lived and you'd see how he spent his money. This is small towns. They, they knew each other. And the money you gave him went to pay for the occupation and the oppression of your people. Which is to say that tax collectors weren't well liked. In fact, to call a tax collector a traitor in that culture would be a severe understatement. To say that tax collectors were hated by the Jews would be an understatement. They were the low. They were the lowest of the low, primarily because they had a choice of what they were doing, and they were choosing to do this to you. They partnered with the enemy. And yet here Matthew sits collecting taxes, taking money from people more than his fair share. He's in the midst of his trade when Jesus walks by. Verse 9 continues, Jesus says to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
Now to a Jewish crowd, even to a Jewish audience who would read this, read this, Jesus does the unthinkable here. For if you know the story, if you know what's coming forward, and you see Jesus walking up on a tax collector, you're expecting some kind of rebuke. And yet that's not what happens. Jesus says, follow me. And context matters, right? And context tells us his disciples are with him. Which means this other group of guys who aren't the most likely to be called in discipleship, but at least they were reasonable Jews. At least they weren't traitors. They're the guys that Jesus called first. We'll see that story in chapter 4, which we'll walk into next week. But in this story, Jesus and his disciples are walking by, and Jesus calls one of the most socially outcast people, one of the most hated, one of the most despised in their society, the biggest sinner they could find, and says, follow me. Now, I've told you twice that context matters. And it does. Because if we were walking through the entire gospel and we'd studied the previous eight verses, the passage in which Jesus heals the paralytic at the beginning of chapter 9, you would see this moment where a paralyzed man comes into Jesus' presence, which would have automatically made all the Jews, including the disciples, gasp. Wait, what? A paralytic? Why is he here? And yet Jesus heals this social outcast. But more than that, he publicly declares his ability to forgive sins, does this in front of his disciples, which had to blow their minds. You know, when we tend to read the Gospels, we read it from a perspective, and we don't tend to consider how the disciples would have seen these moments. We just go, oh, cool, he got to get up. That's awesome. This would, that moment in early chapter 9 would have challenged the disciples. It would have been a huge lesson to them that Jesus loves everybody and can heal everybody, even the social outcast. And clearly he has the ability to forgive sins because he proved it by making this guy walk. But clearly that wasn't the lesson Jesus had for his disciples. At least that wasn't enough of the lesson. For here, a matter, a verse later, they leave that gathering and Jesus ups the ante as if these other guys need to learn something. Jesus finds a guy committing the unforgivable sins of that culture, a social outcast, and says, you, hey, why don't you come with us? Why don't you join in on this? And you have to appreciate that when a teacher in that culture says, follow me, that they weren't going on a walk. In fact, everyone in that culture would have understand that those words meant something. That when a teacher would say, follow me, it's a packed in phrase that suggests up front, I'm asking you to drop everything and come with me. I'm asking you to become a part of my family, to be an adherent of my philosophy, to take on my teachings and pass them on, to enter into my life and become like me. To follow, when Jesus says, follow me, It's a call to become one of his disciples. 
And culturally, if Jesus reaching out to Matthew is not ridiculous enough, something more astounding happens. Matthew goes. He follows him. He decides to enter into the path of discipleship under Jesus. And let's pause again for a second to consider this. Matthew was a tax collector. His job was collecting taxes, and that's not a job you just walk away from. Don't know if you've picked up on this. The Romans weren't kind people. They didn't take it well when you walked away from your post. In fact, it would not have been uncommon if you walked away from your post for them to take you and kill you just for that. The Romans had appointed him. They'd given him a job. They'd given him a privilege. They'd made him wealthy. So who's going to collect the taxes now? But more than that, likely Matthew still owed Rome a ton of money. And yet in that moment, when Jesus stands before him, this totally unworthy sinner in this culture, and Jesus says, follow me, none of that practical stuff mattered. For by Matthew's own testimony, he stands up and follows Jesus. By the way, Mark and Luke tell us the same story in their Gospels. Mark 2, Luke 5. But in Luke's Gospel, he includes another detail. My guess is a detail that Matthew is too humble to say on his own. In Luke 5.29, something that clearly meant something to Paul for him to pass on to Luke and for Luke to record. This is what Luke records about this moment. It says in 529, and Levi, just so you know, Jews had two names. It's like a middle name. Some call him Matthew, some call him Levi. He goes by both in the New Testament. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining with him. So immediately... Upon following Jesus, immediately upon becoming his disciple, Matthew's first thought is, well, let's throw a huge party. Let's throw an enormous feast, which, by the way, testifies to how corrupt he was, right? It tells you immediately, by way of context, that in order to throw a huge feast, you had to be pretty wealthy. You had to afford all this food. To throw a huge feast, you've got a house that... You have to have a house big enough to host all these people. Matthew throws a huge feast, which suggests he had the means and the relationships for a large company of tax collectors to gather together to eat. And Jesus and his disciples were there too, according to Matthew verse 10. Coming back to Matthew 9. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. To Matthew, following Jesus clearly meant something. His life changed. And it changed in a moment, and it changed dramatically. One minute he's stealing from the people, the very next moment with Jesus in his life, He's fully integrated Jesus into his life. Now, don't miss that, because that's the part of this that's untrue in our culture most of the time. Immediately, Matthew fully integrates Jesus into his entire life, meaning this. 
Matthew doesn't hide Jesus from his life. And he isn't hiding his life from Jesus. See, it's not uncommon for us to decide to be a Christian on Sunday mornings and Monday through Fridays live a different way. That's not an unreasonable reality in our culture, and yet that's clearly, according to the example of Matthew, not the paradigm of following Jesus. He integrated him completely. We see him change on a dime. Friends, Jesus stepped into his life and it changed him. And I have no doubt if we took a poll, there are some of us in this room that that's our stories. Jesus changed us in a moment. In a flash, we gave up all kinds of things. That's a story that happens a lot. But that's not the only story. That's not the only story we see. In fact, if we leaned into Peter's story, you'd see a guy who's invited into a journey and progressed all the way through. That's some of our stories too. There are some people here who can tell you that on April 16th in 1984, it was like 11-11 at night, and there was two stars in the sky, they're hanging over this tree, and I was on a swing, and they've got that moment. And there are some of us who don't. You, you want to ask me when I became a believer? I can give you a season. I think it was the summer of 1989. When, where, I have no clue. I, I know I asked Jesus into my life probably 37 trillion times that summer. All I know is sometime it took. Sometime Christ transformed me and set me on a different path. Don't set Matthew aside. Don't write him off because he had a moment. Because there's some things about Matthew's life that are worth us considering. There are things about him that makes him far more relatable than many other New Testament characters. Follow me on this. Matthew didn't come to Christ from a hyper-religious background. Matthew didn't come to Christ from a great family of believers where his parents and his grandparents were all great believers and it just naturally followed that he'd fall in line. And that's some of our stories, right? We come to Christ out of almost nothing. That's part of our stories. Matthew was quite a sinner which, by the way, is absolutely true of all of us before Christ. It does not matter whether you are selling dope or stealing cookies from your mother. Sin is sin, and the sin you are engaged with doesn't matter how far into it you were. There's a theological truth that suggests you were separated from God by your sin, and that's the problem. The particulars of what you were involved with aren't. We miss that often in the church. For people will say, nobody wants to hear my testimony. Nobody wants to hear my story. I've never done anything exciting. Friends, you were dead and you were brought back to life, and that's epic. It doesn't matter what you did while you were dead. You were dead. The story isn't that he's redeemed you from this. He's brought you to life. And that's what we see in Matthew. We see him brought to life. Now, as we continue into this series, I'm now going to lean into away from the text to tell you a little bit about tradition. I like this part of, of Matthew's story. Because tradition suggests to us that after Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts 2, when the disciples started spreading out, do you know what Matthew did? I find this so relatable. Matthew settles down in Palestine and lives a life. 
which is what makes Paul so attainable to us, right? We look at Paul and go, yeah, well, he moved here and he did it here and here and here, and I've got a family and I've got kids and I can't do that. I mean, I'm not going to go plant churches all over Turkey. That's possible that God could call you to do that. But for most of us, God's going to plant us somewhere and ask us to lead a life that's distinguished for the gospel where Jesus is integrated into everything. Tradition tells us that's what Matthew did. Now, we know he went on mission trips, clearly to Syria and Ethiopia. There's evidence to prove those things. But he lived a normal life. And he lived a normal life because Jesus had made such a huge impact on his life that every one of his normal days exposed people to Christ. Now, let's finish the rest of this text because it matters. And let's watch Jesus starting back in verse 11. Because they're in this crowd, because they're surrounded by sinners, because all of Matthew's pagan buddies happen to be sitting around a table and Jesus and his disciples happen to be there, clearly the Pharisees, the religious people who like to look down their noses on everyone, the people who like to make long lists of rules and push everyone who can't keep their rules aside, show up to watch so they can let everyone know how they're falling short. The Pharisees show up and they say to his disciples, they don't go to Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Words mean things. They mean things in this context. The word sinner used by Pharisee literally means those who break our rules. It's this idea that if you're not measuring up, we get to look down on you. And for Jesus to be eating with this people, it not only discredits Jesus, it taints him. For from their perspective, to eat with an unclean people is to become unclean. They cannot fathom why anybody would be with anyone who's unclean. And yet Jesus who just healed an unclean paralytic. And Jesus, who just called an unclean tax collector, sees their hearts. And in verse 12, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, quoting the Old Testament. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, Jesus quickly crushes easy believism in this passage. This idea that you can do it, whatever you want, this idea that earning your way to salvation, this idea of meeting the right standard. Jesus acknowledges that these Pharisees have righteousness, but acknowledges that their righteousness was not enough. He crushes easy believism by pushing these Pharisees away. He doesn't look at them and say, hey man, you guys are good enough. Keep trying hard. Hey, here are the three ways you need to try harder. He pushes them away to say that your righteousness is not enough and your quest for righteousness is not enough and the way you call people to your righteousness is not enough. But sinners, sinners 
That's who I'm after. Sinners, people who fall short. People who can't seem to get it together. Sinners, just like you and me. There's something extraordinary when you start studying the Gospels to see Jesus calling sinners to himself. And friends, I would tell you if you were here and you've never believed in Jesus Christ, what Jesus says to you is follow me. Follow me. Come get on a path and walk with me. Take on my life. Take on my teaching. Live like me. Love like me. Serve like me. Do what I do, go where I go. So that the hands and feet and the face of Christ show up all over this planet. That's his calling. And if you have believed in Jesus, if you've trusted him unto salvation, it doesn't matter at what point in your journey you're on. Jesus beckons you to follow him. To push off the easy believism of our culture. To push off the subjective philosophies of our culture and say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to study him. I want to know what he does. I want to become like him. One of the challenges as we walk through these 10 weeks is I want to ask all of us to read through the book of Matthew. Okay, we got 10 weeks to do that. Now, for some of you, you're like, 10 weeks? I can read it 10 times. Awesome. You get to read it 10 times. And if you're like, I'm a, like a chapter a day kind of guy, that's cool. Be a chapter a day guy. And if you're like, I'm like two verses is like all I can take, you're a pansy. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. Get an app on your phone and listen to it while you drive. It's not hard. I want us to start looking into Jesus to follow him so that we'll understand what he says and we'll have to deal with what he says and we'll have to watch what he does and we'll have to deal with what he does and we'll have to watch where he goes and we're going to have to deal with where he goes. And we're going to watch how he loves. And we're going to have to deal with how he loves. And we're going to watch how he serves. And we're going to have to deal with how he serves. And if you don't think that's a big deal, watch how many times in this gospel he tells his friends, the disciples, I'm going to die. And know that the message he gave them over and over again is this is going to cost you everything. Friends, as we walk through this, as we walk through Matthew, looking at what it means to follow me, we're going to walk into some difficult and challenging places. And we're going to spend the next nine weeks in the book of Matthew following Jesus and the disciples and looking at what it means to follow him. I'm pretty excited about our next 10 weeks. Let me pray. Gracious Father, Thank you that in your word we find subject or we find objective truth. There's nothing we can hide from. Father, thank you that in this book you crush all of our idols. You crush all of our excuses. 
and you make it plain the call to every believer in Jesus Christ to follow you, to become a, one of your disciples, to integrate you fully into every aspect of our lives so that who we are on Sunday morning is who we are on Thursday night and Friday night and Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday morning. Father, that you are desiring within us to build a, a people who live out the gospel all the time, everywhere. Father, would you call us into a deeper relationship with your son, Jesus, as we watch him for the next 10 weeks? And would you do a good work in us, transforming us and making us more and more and more like your son? It's in his name we pray. Amen.